find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Letting the days go by, letting the water hold me down, letting the days go by, water flowing underground, into the blue again, after the money's gone, once in a lifetime, water flowing underground, and you may ask yourself, how do I work this? Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome back to day four of Merry X-Lapse for 2021, where we're going to be taking a look at... Uh, what feels kind of like Baby's first X-Factor comic. Uh, this is very exposition-heavy, um, and we'll talk about why as we get into it, or at least my theories as to why when we get into it here, but uh, how about we just get into it? Now, this is X-Factor number 27, had an April 1988 cover date. The story is called Gifts. It's by the Simonsons, written by Luis, pencils by Walter. Inks, Bob Wiasek, letters, Joe Rosen, colors, Petra Scotese, 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 however you say that. Edits, Harris DeFalco, cover price, 75 cents. Now, our story opens, uh, we're by the Empire State Building, where Jean Grey is lugging X-Factor's teenage wards along telekinetically. Now, we can see that the antenna of the Empire State Building has been knocked off. And now, this happened uh, during the just-ended Fall of the Mutants, the X-Factor chapters during their battle with Apocalypse and the Horsemen. Now, the kids are freaked out, but Jean assures them that X-Factor is going to do something about it. At least something to get uh, the people of New York City through the holiday season, and, um, well, their heart's in the right place. I'll give them that much. They touch down atop another nearby building where Scott, Hank, Bobby, and a slew of reporters are waiting. Scott and Gene embrace, and uh, they make out straight away. Uh, our man Rusty drops a bit of exposition for those of us in the back of the classroom, as in in a very awkward and ham-handed sort of way. Now, he tells Boom Boom that Scott's wife, Madeline Pryor, died ages ago. And, you know, he only ever married her in the first place because he thought Jean was dead anyway. So, um, hmm. You know, I feel like that's something that we readers are allowed to point out, but when they actually say it in story, it, it, makes, uh, it makes our man Scott seem like uh, kind of an asshole. Hank giddily hoists Richter up in the air, which Julio finds a bit weird. Now, you see, Hank's got a case of the donkey brains right now, and we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. Now, I did mention that reporters are there. And they are. And they're waiting, and uh, they've got some questions. Uh, not for X-Factor, though, but for the kids. You see, the press wants to know more about them, you know, what their powers are. If X-Factor actually managed to train them to use those powers in a responsible way. Now, Scott apologizes to the kids for sticking them in the limelight, to which Rusty says, hey, you know, it's cool. He wants to use this uh, opportunity to tell the folks that they're not scary, or scary, it's spelled S-C-A-R-E-Y, for um, the first of a few times in this issue. I don't know if that's uh, an accurate spelling. I, don't, I mean, it doesn't tick like a wavy red line under it in uh, Google Docs, so maybe it is another way to spell it. I don't know, but it just seems kind of weird. Anyway, a reporter does the old uh, pop quiz hotshot thing and asks Rusty to explain exactly what a mutant is. And as I mentioned at the start here, this feels like a, you know, baby's first X-Factor issue. This is a jumping-on point, I think. Perhaps trying to hold on to some of the looky-loos who may have only started picking up X-Factor due to the Fall of the Mutants cross-event branding that was on top of the last uh, three or so issues. Now, Rusty responds with, quote, 
A mutant is a person born with an altered genetic structure that gives him dot 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 unusual abilities, which Scott gives the big thumbs up. He then demonstrates his unusual abilities, pointing at Skids, causing, I think, something she was holding to burst into flame? Now, you might be thinking that this is a pretty dangerous thing to do, and you'd be right. Only, it provides Skids the opportunity to show off her mutant ability of creating a force field. Artie then shows off that he can think in pictures, and we see a Christmas tree in his mind, uh, as he wishes everyone a happy Christmas. Richter then claps, causing some icicles to shake free from above, likely impaling several frantic shoppers scampering around New York City down below. Boom Boom then goes to set off a time bomb, but Leech doesn't want to see that play out, so he leaps at her, showing off his own mutant ability of stifling out other mutant abilities. You dig? Now, um, this feels very much like that uh, that weird scene out of uh, Secret Wars number one. Where all the heroes stand around being like, hey, I'm the Wasp and these are my powers. Hey, I'm Iron Man and this is what I can do. It feels very much like that. Now, I mentioned an icicle being snapped off by Richter's seismic hoodoo. So how about we find out where that actually came from? Well, if if you've seen the cover of this issue, you'd know that uh, the top of the Empire State Building has been replaced by a giant Christmas tree ice sculpture courtesy of Kid Cool. Which, you know, makes for a wonderful and festive visual. But, um, you know, what's that one thing that ice tends to do? Oh yeah, melt. Melt, yeah. So I'm sure the folks at Damage Control are probably crying into their eggnog right now because that's going to be quite a mess. Scott now offers to take some of the reporters down to the ground, quote, the fast way. Which is to say via Gene's telekinesis. All but one of the reporters graciously turned down this offer. Uh, Now, the one who does step forward and wants to go for the ride is Trish Tilby. Now, Beast warns her that it's a bit scary with the EY again, but she's cool with it. And so, they go. Now, Trish, during the ride here, thinks to herself that uh, these X-Factor folks seem almost normal. Well, all except for Artie and Leech. But then she notes how much fun the little ones seem to be having and giggles herself, claiming that, hey, you know what, perhaps they are just normal, happy kids. The next factor lands on Fifth Avenue, where the kids press their faces up against some department store windows. Scott and Gene talk about how these kids don't really know what Christmas is, and uh, how during the fall of the mutants, their home base had been destroyed, Christmas gifts along with it. Nearby, the missing member of X-Factor looks on. And, of course, this is the new-look Warren Worthington, who is quite annoyed to see his teammates reveling in both Christmas and in the adulation of the humans. And he destroys a brick chimney, perhaps uh, lashing out at poor Santa Claus, before screeching away into the night. Now, back to Cyclops, who walks past an electronics store. And it's one of those cliché stores with the wall of TV sets in the window that folks in media always seem to be walking by when a writer needs to drop in, like, a whole load of exposition. You know the kind. It's We've seen this before. We'll see it again. And, well, that's exactly what we have going on right here. Now, as Scott walks by, he sees Madeline Pryor on the screen. Now, why anybody in the world would be filming Maddie, I couldn't tell you. Anyway, she appeals to Scott to find their son and raise him well. Now, Scott is quite shocked, as he believed Maddie had died, uh, in the words of Rusty, ages ago. Not only that, he was sure that baby Nathan was a goner, too. And now he finds out that Maddie was actually with the X-Men when they died in Dallas. Now, Scott learns that Forge did some hoodoo where he turned the X-Men and Maddie into a being of pure energy, yada, 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 
Of course, this led to the Outback era, which we did just cover a Christmas story from a couple of episodes back. Now, Scott is pretty much beside himself at learning all this, and he pulls himself away from Gene. He says he must be alone for a while. And Jean begins to cry before dramatically throwing herself up against a nearby wall. I mean, this looks like straight out of like a 1960s DC romance comic. It's, it's, very, uh, it's very silly, very over the top. Anyway, we see Trish pull Hank aside to chat him up for a bit. We'll get to that later. But then Iceman approaches Jean to discuss this, you know, current revelation. Now, he, being the most realistic member of the cast, kind of shrugs off the X-Men's apparent death, claiming, hey, you know what, they're the X-Men. We were X-Men. We've been through far worse, and we always came back. So it's almost like he's, you know, read comics before. Now, this doesn't stop Jean's crying, though, and upon realizing that her own parents don't even know that she's not dead, she takes off herself. Iceman then takes the kids to X-Factor's temporary digs via Ice Slide, now, along the way, he runs them past the children's ward at Roosevelt Hospital in order to, I don't know, bum them all out, I guess? Okay, not exactly, but we will get there. Now, X-Factor's new home, by the way, is Apocalypse's wrecked ship. Upon arrival, they're met by the police, who present them with a Christmas tree and a box of ornaments. They thank the officers, Beast carries the tree inside, and the rest of the kids follow. Now, it's worth noting, the entrance to the ship is kind of Krakoan, in that only mutants can pass through. Once inside, the kids are astonished by all the crazy, sinister technology inside. They start pressing all sorts of buttons on the monitors until a Charlie Brown Christmas starts to play on one of them. Now, Beast is growing more and more frustrated that he's around all this crazy tech, and he doesn't have the slightest idea what any of it does. Remember, he is all donkey-brained right now. It's a very, uh, like Flowers for Algernon sort of thing, which is a story I'm almost 100% positive I've recently referenced, um, but I, I couldn't tell you exactly where I referenced it. Anyway, Beast starts wrecking stuff before tackling Richter for no apparent reason. Bobby manages to pull Hank off to drop a bit of exposition on how Hank had gotten this way. Now, you see, he was touched by pestilence back in issue number 19, and uh, the footnote here says way back in number 19, which... I mean, that was like ten months ago. That's not too long ago. Anyway, Tabitha considers the Beast's growing dumbness pretty gross. Uh, Richter gets in her face a reminder that he's only dumb now because he was trying to save the world from Apocalypse and his horsemen. Just then, to add insult to injury, a Trish Tilby news report pops up on the screen. And she dumps another bucket of exposition into our tale. She talks all about some of the recent sacrifices X-Factor has made. Uh, they lost their home. They lost a member in Angel and one of them lost their intellect. Huh. Now, this is the first of many, many betrayals Ms. Tilby will pull on Hank McCoy over the years. Hank cries, saying, you know, why did she have to tell everyone I'm dumb now, and uh, says that he thought Trish was his friend, which um, will not be the first time he falls for this. Though, you know, they will be romantically linked later. Trish is always kind of... She's career first, it seems. Anyway, scene shift to Annandale on Hudson and the Grey House. Now, the Greys are watching the Maddie Pryor thing and commenting on how much this broad looks like their dearly departed Jean. Then, just like that, there's a knock at the door. And, duh, it's Jean. It's worth noting here that the bottom panel of pretty much all the rest of the pages of this issue have uh, some machinery, like, clicking and whirring into place. It's going to be clear at the end what this all means, but uh, I don't think I need to mention that it's happening over and over and over again. Anyway... Here, Jean reunites with her folks, 
And even though their, you know, thought-to-be-dead daughter has just come back to them from the afterlife, all the Greys seem to want to talk about is Jean's missing sister, Sarah. Macy Sarah was recently on television giving pro-mutant speeches, which led to her home being firebombed. Sarah and her kids were never found, and so they're assumed to be either dead or in hiding. Jean promises to get some answers, but warns her folks that she dare not visit them again until whatever's going on blows over. Let's hop back over to ship, where a bunch of delivery trucks have shown up. Now you see, due to Trish's news report, the people of New York have come together to give the X-Factor kids a real Christmas experience, which uh, totally sounds like something the people of New York would do. Anyway, these trucks are full of gifts for the kids who waste no time digging into them. But then, Leech has a wonderful idea. Now, he remembers how Bobby bummed them all out by flying past the children's ward at the hospital, and how none of those children will be getting any presents. And, well, I'm I'm not sure how Leech would know that they're not getting any presents, but we'll just play along because a nice thing is about to happen. Old Firefist, uh, you know, was Rusty ever actually called Firefist? I feel like that's just like the trivia answer for Rusty. I don't know that he's ever been called that. Anyway, Rusty thinks that this is a spectacular idea. Boom Boom predictably disagrees, but ultimately relents, so long as she can keep the sweater she just unwrapped. Now all they gotta do is sneak past all the police who are guarding the ship. So Tabitha pops a time bomb to distract them, and they creep on by. Jean returns to ship a little bit later and is surprised to find the place mostly empty. You see, the kids have gone, and so she heads in to wake Bobby and Hank so they can try and track them down. She also talks about how all their friends and families are probably going to be hunted down and killed, to which Bobby's all, hey, yo, Jeannie, one thing at a time. So let's go check in with the kids uh, as they drag a pallet full of wrapped presents through a seedy-looking alley on their way to the hospital. Now, they're engaged by some yuletide street toughs who try and hold them up. But Jean and the rest show up to extinguish the situation. Bobby even uses Iceman Tactical Approach A, where he encases a baddie in ice. And, you know, it must be a Christmas miracle, because this time, it actually works. Gene then TKs the kids up into the air to get an explanation. Leech admits that this whole thing was his idea, and also says that he is not sorry about it. This causes Bobby to start chuckling, which ultimately breaks Gene, and she starts laughing too. She hugs Leech, claiming that she can't stay mad at them for trying to spread some Christmas joy. Oddly enough, uh, Leech doesn't wind up sapping Jean's TK power, you know, thus sending them all plummeting to the ground below. That's a little odd. I don't know if we can no-prize that, or if maybe I'm just not understanding the uh, scope of his powers. So from here, we head to the children's ward, where we see Beast dressed up as Santa, which is to say he's wearing his ugly brown X-Factor costume, but also he's wearing a fake white beard and a Santa hat. I want to say that the kids are probably just patronizing him. I'm, I'm guessing Hank thinks he's actually fooling them all. Anyway, at this point, Scott enters just to tell Gene that he's leaving, because he's got to go track down baby Nathan. Now, this takes us all to the close, where we find out what all that poppin', whirrin', and clickin' was all about with the machinery panels there, and, uh, well, it was Ship repairing itself. Now, we close by seeing Apocalypse and his horsemen toasting Ship, and also toasting X-Factor. He says that they can keep ship, but maybe don't get too comfortable because there's something ticking just under the surface. He wishes them a Merry Christmas, uh, but suggests that it's probably their last. So, what can we say about this one? Well, you know, one thing that 
I guess it has nothing to do with the issue itself, but uh, this uh, Mary X lapsed exercise that differentiates it uh, from when we did this last year is how, like in the back of my mind, I've got this maybe Pollyanna-ish thought that we're eventually going to get the Essentials program to the point where we're going to be discussing these issues again, which I, I never considered last year. So last year I feel like I was able just to encapsulate my thoughts in a vacuum, where now I kind of feel weird doing that, because if Essentials does take off and we do stick with it and we get to this point... Part of me would like to, like, reuse bits of this audio along with, you know, things like letters pages and bullpen bulletins and any other sort of context-specific things that would help with the listening and the story flow and just the uh, the narrative, I suppose. So, yeah, I'm kind of torn. Like, do we just talk about the Christmas bits or do we actually start talking about Fall of the Mutants and uh, what happened to Warren and... Uh, Apocalypse and the ship and baby Nathan Do we talk about all that stuff now or do we save that? Well, for the purpose of the Mary X Labs deal here Let's let's save all the context uh, With uh, the thought that we will Hopefully eventually get back to it here And let's just cover this as a Christmas story And as a Christmas story, it was a fun one I feel like uh, retroactively these uh, This group of youngsters we have That are hanging around X-Factor Kind of get the short shrift um, When we think about The next generation of mutants Especially from this era I think our minds instinctively go To the new mutants I mean, they are the more marquee characters At this point uh, Although, you know, the are we calling them The X-Terminators? Or <laughs> what are we calling this group here That hangs out with X-Factor? Whatever we're going to call them, they always seem to be kind of the also-rans to, you know, Sam and Ilyana and Danny and the rest. So it's pretty neat seeing them get a bit of the focus here, even though story-wise maybe it was a little forced, a little clunky. Um, like I said during the synopsis, it felt like that one opening scene or semi-opening scene from Secret Wars where they're just like, yes, this is me and this is my powers. It felt very much like that. It felt very... Well, as I put it, uh, you know, baby's first X-Factor issue. And, and like I said, I think there there might have been a point to that, uh, trying to hold on to some of the readership that may have come over simply out of uh, completionism to collect all of the Fall of the Mutants stuff. This is a pretty good way to uh, try to keep some of those readers, to try to introduce them to and make them comfortable with some of these characters they may have never seen before. You know, a character like Richter or Rusty, Skids, they, they may not know who these characters are. So to have them here in this sort of clunky way introduce themselves kind of works in, in that regard anyway. Of course, that's not the only exposition we get here. We get uh, a lot of odd exposition dropped on us to keep us up to date with the rest of the team. You know, the, the main X-Factor team, which gave me this like weird vibe that uh, the team themselves like had so little agency in this story. It was just like stuff was happening to them and about them, and they were just kind of there to react. Of course, like I said, it was done this way likely on purpose just to give as much information as possible in the amount of pages that are allotted to a single issue. I mean, could it have been done in a less clunky way? Sure, but uh, did it have to be? Probably not. I do think it was very advantageous timing to have uh, the exposition-heavy issue also be the Christmas issue, because if you were reading X-Factor up to this point, and you, you know, you're getting all this expo dump on you, you're still getting this Christmas story, you know, and it feels like a, like a downtime issue, it feels like a quieter issue, and you're getting something different, 
you know, it's the story slows down because it's it's Christmas time. If you are new to the X Factor book, or at least new as in you didn't buy it before Fall of the Mutants, well then you're here to be informed and be caught up to the goings on and the who's who of this team. Overall, a decent enough issue that uh, you know I'm actually looking forward to revisiting because I'd really like to talk about this era some more, but without all the context and without having read from this era in many, many years, I feel like I'd do it a disservice if I were to try. But uh, somewhere down the line, we eventually will. Before I zip the lip here, let's uh, mention the art. Um, Now, this may sound like heresy to some, but uh, Walter Simonson has never really been my cup of tea. Uh, His older stuff from DC, I can get on board with. Um, Here, though, it feels... You know, it's odd. Um, their, their styles are like nothing alike, but I almost compare him to current day uh, John Romita Jr., where it's kind of boxy, kind of a... Uh, I'm trying to think of the right term here. It's it's not like it's bad work or anything, and it's not like it's not detailed, but like the detail is different. You know, kind of like a current year John Romita Jr. piece where, I mean, there's detail there. It may not be to everybody's liking, but it's I don't know, it's hard to put into words. Uh, it's like something you you know if you see it, but it's near impossible, at least for me, to actually, you know, verbalize what I feel about it. I just know that uh, it's not my favorite, and I guess I'll leave it at that. But uh, I think that's all I have to say about this issue. And I apologize if my thoughts have kind of just been all over the place this episode. Uh, this has been a weird visit to the uh, Merry X Lapsed Corner. Like I said earlier... I'm trying to do it with like an eye toward taking all of the context out, but also putting some in. It's very weird. <laughs> it's very, very weird. So I apologize if this felt a little bit or completely disjointed. Uh, that wasn't the intention, I promise you. Anyway, if anybody out there would like to uh, chat me up about anything we've talked about or anything you want to talk about, I invite you to do so. You could find me several different ways. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can go to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90sXmen. For the complete audio archives, you can search up Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill on any podcast aggregation application or go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And, of course, there is the Patreon, patreon.com slash xlapsed. But I think that's going to do it for me for today. I'd like to thank you all so much for choosing to spend a little bit of your holiday season with me. And until next time, as always, I'll go to you again real soon. See ya. Going on deep inside your heart.